This morning we're going to be discussing 1 Peter chapter 3, which deals with marriage and the marriage relationship. And as we think about marriage and the marriage relationship, for those of you who have not been married as long as Ruth Ann and I, and some of you have been married longer, on the lighter side, we do impact one another. This morning I get up and got my shower and had breakfast, and Ruth Ann hangs my shirt's at a certain spot and the coat behind it, and the tie goes over the coat, and then she lays the pants out on the chair. And I am not very smart when it comes to dressing well, you know, what goes together. I got the shirt out, and I thought, well, I don't know. I've been more of this one before. Maybe it's new. I don't know if it is or not. I put the pants on and didn't think too much about it because it's semi-dark in the bedroom. Grabbed my coat and stuck my tie in the pocket and went downstairs and turned the light on and I, I looked. I thought, tan pants and my shirt just don't seem, didn't look quite right to me, but I thought, well, I, I'm not the color person. So I came down to church, you know, did my normal routine, went over my sermon and prayed, and Ruth Ann comes in about 9, 10 and says, looks at me and says, oh. so that doesn't go together. I said, I put the pants on that you had out. Oh, she said, I laid them in the wrong order. She had the black ones underneath the tan ones. She said, you need to go home. You need to change your pants. So I'm improving in the sense that I at least thought it didn't go together, but I didn't know. So that's after 47 plus years. So she has been a good helper to me along the way. As we think about First Peter chapter 3, keep in mind that the church is undergoing persecution, and the persecution is not coming from the government coming from, you know, maybe a neighbor, a co-worker, some family member. Their identity in Christ is emphasized very, very strongly. You know, they've been elected by God, they're a chosen people, they're a royal priesthood, and so on. The overall purpose seems to be how to live holy and to live godly in a foreign culture. That is, they as believers are not at home in the culture in which they lived. There's an emphasis also that your servants... Of Christ. Servants of God, you yield to Him, you surrender to Him. Let's read together, beginning with verse 1 of 1 Peter 3. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. When they see the purity and reverence of your lives, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and wearing of gold and jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters if you do what is right, and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considered as you live with your wives, and treat them with respect as a weaker partner, and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, 
so that nothing will hinder your prayers. As we read this passage, the context is important. In chapter 2 and verse 11, he says, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. He's encouraging them in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of living by a different standard, so to speak. He calls them aliens and strangers. Live well so that they see your good deeds and they glorify God on the day he visits Then in verses 13 through 17, explaining how to live well, he says, slaves, or rather, I'm sorry, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men. Citizens, submit to authority. In verse 18, how are they to live as aliens and strangers? Submit yourself to your masters with all respect. And then he says in chapter 3 and verse 1, wives in the same way. Here's how you live well and good. And in verse 7, husbands, in the same way, here's how you live well and good as a citizen of God. And then in verses 8 through 12, he says, finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Here's how you as a body are to live well, live in harmony with one another, be sympathetic and so on. And in verse 13, he says, who's going to harm you in chapter 3 of 13? Who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone ask you to give the reason for the hope that you have. We find that Paul in chapter 2, verses 11 through chapter 3, the end of chapter 3, is encouraging them to live well, to live good, to live, if you please, an apologetic life. An apologetic life is one that is live well, that raises questions and people notice and say, what's different about them? And in the context of what we want to discuss this morning, he's talking about marriage, wives, husbands, obeying their role as God's elect as they live in the world according to God's will and God's standards. And I think if we're going to correctly understand the passage, we need to be aware of some cultural items in Peter's time. A wife would have no friends of her own and would worship the gods of her husband. This was the ideal orderly home. A wife, as well as other household women, were to live under the authority of her husband or the head of the household. Women were considered inferior to men. And that is significant when husbands are told to be considered of their wives because Peter is exhorting going contrary to the culture. Women were considered weaker in body and in courage. Outward adornments were often perceived as instruments of seduction. And a woman's use of cosmetics was viewed as an attempt to deceive. Both were unnecessary if a woman stayed at home. Some cultural 
settings at that time. One writer says in the context of 1 Peter, and I quote, because the call to faith in Christ is a call for life-changing personal realignment, the conversion of either spouse in the Roman marriage held the potential for serious problems, both between the couple and between the couple and society. Depending on how the believing spouse behaves, the situation could also provoke criticism of the Christian religion if its practices were perceived to subvert and disrupt the society order and the well-being of the empire. Converted spouses also no doubt experienced confusion as to how to live their new, live their new identity in Christ and how that should affect their relationship with an unbelieving world. End of quote. The very fact that a woman would adopt any religion other than her husband's violated the cultural ideal of the orderly home. A woman came to faith in Christ and didn't follow her husband's gods. That would have influenced the culture because prosperity and well-being were seen as dependent on religion, religious forces. Disorderly in the, or disorder in the home was a threat not only to the family, but to society. Christians were frequently blamed as the cause of public problems as they introduced a new God, upsetting the religious status quo of the empire. The husband and society would perceive the wife's worship of Jesus as rebellion, especially if she worshipped Christ exclusively. If the wife persisted in her new religion to the extent that others outside the household learned of it, the husband would also feel embarrassment and suffer criticism for not properly maintaining his household. The wife's attendance at Christian worship would provide the opportunity for her to have friends with other Christians who were possibly not her husband's friends. If a Christian wife attended Christian worship outside of her home, and especially without her husband, society would perceive that act as questionable. So Peter is writing to a culture that had some what would be called cultural norms. There's no connection, Jer. So there'd be, no, or there'd be some cultural norms. And he's giving guidance on how to live as an alien, as a stranger, how to live a good life. And in verses 1 through 6, he addresses wives. And in verse 7, he addresses husbands. And he says to wives, wives in the same way, just as slaves were to live in a certain way, to live a good life, as citizens are to live a certain way to live a good life, he says, wives, be submissive to your own husbands. And the idea of submission is willingly placing yourself under. The mindset, I think, would spring from Genesis chapter 2. We won't turn there this morning, where God in creation established an order for husband and wife. The idea of submission is not a have to, but one of reverence for the Lord. For the wife, it would bring freedom because 
she would be living in the sphere for which she was created. God created husbands to live and respond in a certain way, wives to live and respond in a certain way. Freedom comes as we live in the design for which we were created. A fish is free when it's in the water. A train is free when it's running on a track. A man is free when he is being considerate of his wife, treating her as a co-heir of the gospel of Christ. A wife is free as she lives in submission to her husband. And then he goes on, in the same way, be submissive to your husband so that the reason... If any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. Do not believe. The word faith, believe, is used a number of times in First Peter. And it carries with it the idea of do not believe would be disobedient, uncompliant. So they do not believe. A husband who would not believe would be uncompliant. To what? The gospel of Christ. A firm persuasion concerning Christ. A firm persuasion from our perspective that would rest on the gospels of Christ. It's not a hope so, but it's a revealed thing where Christ was revealed. It's confirmed through Christ's bodily resurrection and evidence through obedience to Christ. So he writes to the wives and he says, if your husband doesn't believe... That is, believe the word, tied in with the gospel of Christ. They're uncompliant. They haven't come to faith in Christ. They may be won over. They may acquire possession of eternal life. How? By the behavior of their wives. The believing wife. And the idea of behavior is just a lifestyle. Not a week here and there, but a lifestyle of response to her husband in submission. What happens when they, the husband, sees the purity, the chaste, the pure, the innocent, the blameless, the morally pure life of the wife? Without words, but they see the purity of the wife's life. Life. Not only purity, but he says reverence. The Greek word for reverence is used several times. It's used in 117, where he talks about living with a reverent fear. It's used in 217, where he talks about fearing God. It is used in 218, where slaves are to submit to their masters. And it's used here in 3.7. And the idea of fear, a reverence, is amazement, astonishment, a trembling, a terror. And depends on the context as to what it means. In this context, there seems to be the amazement and astonishment. They see the purity and reverence of your life. Now, I realize what I'm putting on PowerPoint now is long. But I'm doing it for a definite reason to emphasize reverence. In the context of First Peter to this point, reverence seems to be an amazement, 
that one was elected by God, experienced the sanctifying work of the Spirit, cleansing through the sprinkling by Christ's blood, grace and peace in abundance, experienced the new birth, experiencing a living hope, anticipating an inheritance that will not perish, spoil, or fade, enjoys the salvation revealed, having an impartial judge, experiencing grace in the midst of trials, the grace to be given when Christ is revealed, redeemed from the empty way of life with the precious blood of Christ, having a hope in God who raised Christ from the dead, purified, born again of imperishable seed, being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, being a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, called out of darkness into his wonderful light, having received mercy and having Christ as one shepherd and overseer of their souls. When you get to chapter 3 and verse 1, all of these items have already been mentioned. And he says, as they see the reverence of your life, an awesome, if you speak, an awestruck of a wife living in submission to Christ and that influencing her response to her husband. But also influencing a husband's response to his wife. He goes on in verse 3, Your beauty should not come from outward adornment such as braided hair and wearing of good gold jewelry and fine clothes. The adornment shouldn't be coming from merely the outside. Instead, it should be that of your inner self. I married Ruth Ann when she was 19. And Ruth Ann will understand as I go along. She was pretty. Never saw her before. I had a box social and I saw her and I thought, I want to eat with her. And uh, as the years have passed on, things have changed some. No, she gets a few wrinkles. She don't have the same energy. She gets headaches. You want to laugh at this when you can. She sags some places. She needs more makeup. I didn't say any of those critical. Not being negative or critical at all. My point is that as she ages, her outward beauty changes. I still think she's pretty. But it changes. But in contrast to that, a woman who is pursuing inner beauty as she gets married at 19 and she walks with God, she has a reverence for God, seeking to be yielded to God, seeking to live as God's child, the inner beauty blossoms and becomes more beautiful. 
And Peter says, the inner self, the unfading beauty, the outer fades. We know that. Whether it be man or woman, but in the context he's talking wise. But the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. A gentle spirit, a meek, a mild, a benevolent, accepting all that comes into one's life as coming through God's sovereignty, thus humbly responding to these items without resistance. A wife developing the unfading beauty of a gentle spirit. A quiet spirit, a tranquil spirit, a peaceful spirit, not fighting within or without. Ruth Ann, early on in her marriage, said she learned to pray. Why did she learn to pray? Because she would say something to me sometimes, and I wouldn't always respond immediately, and she may say something to me a second time, And then I told her, and this is early on in marriage, and just being open with you, I said to her, quit nagging. I didn't think I was nagging. So she said, what's your definition of nagging? I said, when you tell me the second time. She just kind of looked at me. I said, if you told me one time, I remember And if I didn't do it, it's not that I forgot. I just didn't do it. So she learned to say, I will tell you one time, then I'll pray and see what God does. And I don't say that to my credit. I say that to Ruth Ann, developing a gentle, quiet, Spirit over time. And Peter goes on to say, this is of great worth in God's sight. He doesn't knock the outward. He just says, make the focus, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. In verse 5, for this is the way holy women of past put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands. And then he says, specifically like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. Now that's coming from Genesis chapter 18. As the angels come to visit with Abraham and say, Sodom and Gomorrah is going to be destroyed and Abraham prays. And we're not going to look at the passage at this time. Lord willing, sometime in the future, we'll go back to Genesis and see the context of Sarah calling Abraham her master. But here, Sarah is held up as one who is submissive to her husband. And then he says, you, referring to wives, are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. 
The idea of fear is tied in with terror, part of the definition we looked at earlier, the terror side. The specific fear seems to be in relation to things not turning out if I submit to my husband and develop an unfading beauty. Now think about Sarah. Abraham said, we're going to Egypt. They're going to see your beauty. And they're going to kill me to get you. So tell them you're my sister. And that was partially true. She was his half-sister. But she did that. And think about the fear in Sarah's part. If I tell him I'm a half-sister, or I'm a, he's my sister, they're going to take me, and I'm going to have to be involved with another man other than my husband. That's what was cracking up to be. Because if Abraham is Sarah's sister and not seen as a husband, they'll let him live. They'll take Sarah and make him make her Pharaoh's wife, one of a number. And the same thing happens in Genesis chapter 20. He says, you are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Don't you think there was some fear, concern on Sarah's part? It may have involved some loss of control. Or will my husband totally reject me if I respond in a certain way? Well, that's wives. He says in verse 7, husbands, in the same way. In the same way, just as a citizen is to live a good life, as a slave is to live a good life, as a wife is to live a good life, husbands, in the same way, be considered as you live with your wives. And the idea of considered is to study her, figure her out, and respond accordingly. Understand your wife, who she is as a person. And again, in Peter's day, the culture would have put men here and women down here. And Peter says, be considerate of her. Understand her. Treat her accordingly. They're not an object to be controlled. That's a revolutionary idea in that culture. Your wife is not an object for you to control or take advantage of. Be considerate of her. Huh, yeah. There's that Neo Jaeger. He's one of them that claims to be a Christian. And how we know it? Because he's considerate of his wife. That's contrary to the norm. Be considerate of your wife as you live with her, live with your wives. And then he says, in the context of knowing them, how they think and how they reason, in the context of considering them as being valuable, consider them and live with your wives and treat them with respect. Husbands, You're to study your wives, you're to figure her out, and you're to treat them with respect. 
a thing of honor, precious, substantial value, veneration. It's contrary to culture in that day. And somewhat contrary to our culture today. Treat her with respect. Our children pick up very quickly where a wife is in her response to their dad and where their dad is in their, his response to their mother. And he says to husbands, Treat her with respect as the weaker partner. One deficient in strength, hesitating, and I think two ideas as you look at the text are involved. Less physical strength and little strength to lead in the context of the home because it's not her design. Study her, figure her out, treat her with respect as the weaker partner. And then he also says, heirs together with you of the gracious gift of life. A co-heir, a fellow participant. It may tie in with, treat her as one who is elect. Treat her as one who has a living hope. Treat her as a chosen people, a royal priesthood. The same position you have in Christ. Your wife has the same thing. Guys, treat your wives in the same way. And again, that would be foreign to the culture to which Peter is writing. And somewhat foreign to our culture even today. Because many times... Women are seen as objects. A wife is to be treated with consideration. Living with her, with respect as a weaker partner, heirs of the gracious gift of life. And as you look into the context, and I'm not going to explain some of the words, but treat her as another believer. Care for her deeply. Thinking about 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7, freedom comes for servants in 2.16, that is, servants of God, as they obey their master, the Lord. Live in the design God made for you. Be content. Enablement from the Lord is experienced as a wife and as a husband choose to obey. Blessing comes as we act in obedience. Wives, here's your role. Husbands, here's your role. Our culture today lures us to attempt to live in a different, severe role than God designed us. We're bombarded, whether it be in media, entertainment, or other realms, which tempt wives to be discontent with submission and the development of a gentle and quiet spirit. Husbands are lured to see women as objects to gratify than to be considered of one's wife. And treating with respect. We're bombarded with that. Advertising many times uses women. 
not with consideration and with respect, but as an object. And in the context of marriage, Peter is saying, your marriages should be apologetic. They should raise questions by the way you respond. Our marriages here at Roaring Brook, not limited to here at Roaring Brook, but since we're here, should raise questions concerning our culture. So a young girl watching a husband and wife as they exit the church building and seeing the husband treat his wife with respect. And in this case, she opened the door for his wife and closed it. And that young girl thinking in her heart, maybe all men are not like the men in my life to this point. That's an apologetic marriage. A simple act of a husband opening the door. And I'm not saying you have to open the door, but in that case, he did. And she saw that and they never knew it until later on she told someone. Peter says, live good lives as aliens, as strangers. Have an apologetics marriage, that is, a Marriage that raises questions. Men are not to be but to be mad. Men are not to be bad mouthed and criticized, but honored by the way wives speak of their husbands and men in general. Women are not to be seen as objects to be used, but respected and studied by their husbands. Please understand that marriages in Christianity have a very, very powerful apologetic value. I'd lived 19 years watching my father relate to my mother and my mother relate to my father. That deeply, deeply impacted me. And that has deeply influenced the way I respond to Ruth Ann. Marriage is very powerful. Yes, there are struggles. If you don't have any, see me afterwards. We'll write a book together and we'll sell it. But in the midst of that struggle, Peter says, here's how you live. Here's how you respond. We'll come at more as we think about our culture next week. Be prepared to explain to people, Dad, why did you respond to Mom in this way in this circumstance? Mom, why did you let Dad take the leadership in this circumstance? Would you tell me what's going on? Apologetic. To explain your identity in Christ. Your desire to be holy as God is holy. Your desire to follow God's design. And the freedom and contentment that that, come, or that brings as one walks with God. In a broken world, 
in a fallen world and in an imperfect world as we seek to fulfill our role in the midst of the struggles of marriage. It has a profound impact. And I'll close with an example that Ruth Ann shared. Over the years, Ruth Ann has cared for a number of elderly people. And occasionally I will call her on her cell phone. Unbeknownst to me, I called her one day and Ruth Ann answered and she got off the phone and the lady that she was caring for said to Ruth Ann, you and your husband have a pretty good relationship. And Ruth Ann said, how do you know? By your less, I don't know if she said, but it was less than two minutes, I'm sure. I usually don't talk real long. By your conversation with your husband. She didn't hear a word I said. She only read Ruth Ann's response. My point is, we deeply influence others. In day by day living. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for all that we have in Christ. In 1 Peter 1 and 2, you mentioned so many items through Peter that believers have. Sprinkling by the blood of Christ, the sanctifying work of the Spirit, an inheritance that won't perish, spoil, or fade away, a new birth, being a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. And Father, our desire would be who we are in Christ as we live our daily lives, to live them well, to live them good to reflect your work in our lives, to live, as I say, apologetic lives in the sense that unbelievers notice, children notice, and may ask questions, may want to know what makes us different. We confess as we seek to live in obedience to you, we struggle. What husband, what wife has not been tempted or not only tempted, but yielded to temptation to respond incorrectly. But again, even how we respond to relational struggles and marriage influences others because they see how we respond to that. Move us more and more, Father, to picture Christ in the church. Thank you for the work you've already done in our lives. And we want you to continue to work in our lives. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.